A reading from Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. That really is a beautiful text. Well, good morning. It is really good to see you all and to uh, have the privilege to get to look at God's Word with you this morning. Uh, before I, uh, <laughs> before I, I dig into this text, um, a word of explanation. We're just going to go with that. Uh, so if you've been with us for the last several weeks, you, you by now know that we are in a series that we're calling God Is. And what we're doing is we're looking at uh, various psalms to try to fill in that blank. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a, a really great study getting to explore the different characteristics of our God. You know, he is our, our maker, our protector, our refuge. Our, uh, today, we're going to talk about how he is our justice and with this particular topic, um, <laughs> it's a big one. It's a very big one. Um, normally when I, when I write out a sermon, my, my typical mode of doing so, there's lots of different ways to do that, um, but the way that I typically do it is I will manuscript what, I, what I'm going to write. So I'll write out everything more or less that I'm, that I'm planning to say, uh, because if I don't, then I'll have no idea how long I'm going to be up here for. Uh, and I have in my head, you know, I try to preach between 30 and 35 minutes, so that equates to about 3,000 to 3,300 words or so. As I was preparing uh, this sermon, writing on this topic, I wrote out about 12,000 words. <laughs> so we're going to be here for two hours, <laughs> and it's going to be great, so buckle up. Um, no. The reason that I say that um, is, is the, the topic of justice, like the, the, the topic of God's justice, right? his care for us, his, his care for what is right, uh, it is a, a beautiful topic. It is a multifaceted topic. It is also a very complex topic. We have seen God display his justice. We, we see it throughout scripture. Many of us have experienced it in our own lives, not only his holiness and his, his righteous standards, but also his willingness to, to reach down and, and care for those who are downtrodden. 
Right, we, we see that all around us, but we also see its counterpart. We see injustice, we see hurt, we see pain. And so when we come to a text that talks about justice, that extols God for his love and his care, many of us, depending on our circumstances, will, will either um, you know, shout God's praise and say, amen, yes, I've seen that. But many of us will hear that and think, God, where are you? You say this about yourself, but this is not my experience right now. And one of the beautiful things about the Bible is that it creates space for both of those feelings. And I think one of the, the, the really great things about trying to answer the question God is through the Psalms is that the Psalms is such a human book. It's divine, but it's also written from the perspective of, of humans who are experiencing real and challenging things. So if you are, are sitting here this morning just thinking, God has been good to me, God has been just, I have seen him work out things for his good purposes, amen. Right, this, book, this book is, or this, uh, this particular psalm is bookended by the, words, by the word hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. So, so he deserves that hallelujah. If you're coming, however, just hurting, and you're having a hard time believing, there is a place for that. There's absolutely a space for that. And perhaps the prayer that we hear from the Father in Mark, you know, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe that should be your prayer this morning. But I do want to affirm, regardless of, of our experience this morning, God is worthy of our praise. And so may his word minister to all of our souls this morning. So let me pray for us and ask that God would do a work, and then we're going we're gonna to jump into our two-hour sermon. All right, it won't be. It's okay. Oh, Father in heaven, we, we thank you this morning for the gift of your word. Uh, we thank you for your spirit who not only inspired this word to be written, but who is at work in our hearts applying it. God, we pray that you would do a mighty work in all of our hearts this morning, that we would have a sense of your care and your presence with us, and that we would get to see Jesus who embodies all of the things that we long to see, God. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. Well, in my family of origin, there are four people. Uh, my parents, myself, and my brother Jeff. My, my older brother uh, is older. He's about seven years older than I am. And uh, growing up, he did his fair share of, of tormenting. Um, but though it may be hard for you to believe, I wasn't always blameless in those circumstances. <laughs> and there's a story that my mom likes to tell. Uh, apparently when I was little, there was a particular cry that I would make when my brother was doing something to me that I didn't like. And it, according to my mom, was distinct from all of the other cries that, that I would make growing up. So my mom heard it, right? she would immediately uh, run and, and get after my older brother. And there would be times where he'd protest, you know, I wasn't doing anything, but my mom you know, had her motherly instincts and, and knew, like, no, 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 he only makes this cry when you are tormenting him, stop it. Until one day, apparently, I've, I've been accused, I don't know. Uh, one day, apparently, I was sitting in uh, our living room with my brother, and we were on opposite sides of the room, we were both minding our own business, and my mom says, she was observing in the kitchen, um, she says that I looked around, like didn't see anybody, 
And then I just, out of nowhere, my brother was, again, across the room, I, out of nowhere, I just made the cry. And uh, expecting my mom to, to run in and come to my aid and get my brother in trouble. And, you know, she observed the whole thing happening and immediately got me in trouble. It was not a, not a pleasant moment. But what it did was, was, was more existential. See, it called her sense of justice and her own ability to discern it and carry it out properly. Right? It called all of that into question. And I thought of that story when I read, uh, read verses 3 and 4 from our text. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. And on that very day, his plans perish. Right? The warning in this passage is against putting our trust in people who, who by their very nature are limited. They're limited in their power, they are limited in their knowledge, and in their ability to execute justice. And this does even apply to mothers and their motherly instincts, unfortunately. But friends, we live in a world that, that longs for justice, that calls for justice, that pleads for justice, that marches for justice. But this text reminds us that God is our justice. He is our hope of actually achieving it. Our God, the maker of heaven and earth, is the only one who sees and knows all and is the only one who is able to truly execute justice. So our hope for justice then must be rooted in Him. So we're going to walk through this passage together this morning and we'll look at, at three points. First, the inadequate justice of man the true justice of God, and the embodiment of justice in Jesus. Well, our psalm opens, well, we're going to start with this point, the inadequate justice of man. And our psalm opens with these words, Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. The opening call of this psalm is one of praise. Psalm 146 is the first of the last five uh, psalms that, that close the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms. And each one of these psalms is bookended by that word, hallelujah. It starts and ends with a word of praise to the Lord. Noting this, one commentator writes, so in, the, so in this respect, as in many others, the psalms are a miniature of our story as a whole, which will end in unbroken praise and delight. And notice how this call goes from a, a plural summons to all, to the psalmist speaking to his own soul, right? trying to stir up private resolve to the action that will do his soul the most good. The Jerusalem Bible translation highlights the, the personal resolve of verse 2 by rendering it this way, I mean to praise Yahweh all my life. I mean to sing to my God as long as I live. God alone deserves our praise, our hope, and our ultimate trust. So then we should therefore, according to the, to the next two verses, put not your trust in princes, and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. I think we should, we should, we should first acknowledge the reality that we do tend to, to put our trust in princes, don't we? We, we have this, this tendency to, to place our faith in places where it, it doesn't belong. 
And oftentimes it is in princes or political leaders. These are, these are prime candidates for us. And I think this is especially the case in our culture today. And according to one cultural commentator, he says, with the possible exception of career, politics has become today's most popular replacement religion, certainly the one with the most forward momentum and cultural currency. But friends, no prince no leader, no influencer deserves our ultimate trust. Why? Well, this text gives a, a rather stark, a rather blunt reason. It says that every one of them will die. And with them, their plans and promises for the future. Now, when I chose this text, I obviously had no idea that I'd be preaching it the week where we, uh, uh, the week that, that Queen Elizabeth died. And in the past few days, it's been amazing to see all of the articles written about her and her numerous virtues. And by most accounts, it appears as though she was an amazing woman and one who loved Jesus. Um, She's quoted as saying, each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way to live my life is to try to do what is right, to take the long view, to give of my best in all that day brings, and to put my trust in God. Even as royalty herself, she appeared to understand the words of this psalm, recognizing that ultimate trust belongs to God alone. But her passing ultimately affirms why. She reigned for over 70 years. She was the longest British monarch and the longest recorded of any female head of state in history. But she was mortal, as is every single human leader. No matter how powerful, influential, capable, or competent a human leader may appear, it doesn't change the fact that they are mortal and are subject to the same end as us all. Our mortality stymies our ability to do what we aim to do. And as a result, no human leader will be capable of bringing about the justice that we all long for. And mortality is only one of the issues that we face, though granted it is, a, it is a big one. In addition to being mortal, in case you hadn't noticed, human beings are also fallible. And so our judgments, including our moral judgments, judgments about justice, are prone to error. There was a, a study conducted at Stanford a while back that demonstrated just how fickle our moral judgments can be. Uh, in this study, students were asked to make moral judgments on various, uh, various issues while their, quote, disgust alarms were, were triggered. Uh, the theory was that external feelings of disgust would have a large, potentially uh, dramatically uh, large impacts on uh, moral decisions. And the experiment was conducted in this way. Um, so a researcher positioned himself on the campus at Stanford in front of a trash can. And he emptied the trash can and um, you know, put in a, a clean plastic bag. And when half of the students that he planned to interview walked by, he would take, um, take a can of, excuse me, fart spray and um, spray it in the trash can while he was interviewing these different people. And um, again, he did this for, for half of the people. The other half uh, got, to, um, got to answer questions without the perfume uh, that he had provided. Uh, and what he found was that the people who were, were taking in the, the scent uh, that was emanating from the trash can 
came out much harsher in their moral judgments of these different things. Like, it had this dramatic impact on, on what people thought was right and wrong. Uh, and there's a, there's a moral psychologist at the University of Virginia who explains sort of this phenomena, saying that we use effects as information. See, according to him, when we're trying to decide what we think about something, we look inward. We look at how we're feeling. So if we are feeling good, then we assume that the thing that we're looking at is good. If we're feeling bad, on the other hand, if our disgust has been triggered, then we assume that the thing that we're looking at must be bad. And so we, we issue much harsher judgments. But there's another psychologist that's shown that we don't even need to trigger feelings of disgust in order to get similar results. He says washing your hands is enough to do it. There's a study at the University of Toronto that showed that subjects who were asked to wash their hands with soap before filling out questionnaires became more moralistic about issues related to moral purity, including issues of pornography and drug use. So if you're feeling clean, then you want to keep things that are perceived as dirty as far as possible away from you. If you're feeling dirty, on the other hand, you apparently are more accepting of such things. All right, why bring this up, you might be wondering. Well, I bring this up in order to demonstrate how fickle we can be when left to ourselves. Princes, sons of men, don't deserve our ultimate trust because they too have the same fickle nature. And as a result, the justice that we try to enact on our own will always be left wanting. And friends, it's not even just a matter of uh, cleanness versus, versus uncleanness. Think about some of the moral decisions you've made when you're hungry, right? Or when you're tired, or when you're filling the blank, right? <laughs> Our fickleness is, is sort of beyond question. We have limited access to information, and the information that we do have access to is limited in its effectiveness because of our tendency to allow how we're feeling in a given moment to influence our sense of right and wrong. So no matter what title we give to a human being, king, queen, prince, princess, president, prime minister, doctor, professor, psychologist, pastor, we are limited, we are mortal, we are fallible, and we are subject to the same fickle nature. So what is our hope? Where does our text direct us? Our text directs us to the God of Jacob, the one who is able to provide true justice. Verse 5 tells us, Blessed is he whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Why? Because he made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them. A few weeks ago when we talked about God as our creator, we examined his greatness and his majesty and talking about what it is that he made. We talked about the scale of his creation, how if we think of our galaxy as the size of North America, our solar system would be the size of a coffee cup on the entire continent. And our earth would be a speck within that coffee cup. And our galaxy is one of up to two trillion galaxies. Our God was able to do all of that, making him beyond worthy of our praise. Right? So that is one thing that would be amazing about creation, its size and its scale. But not only is creation massive, it is also extremely ordered and fine-tuned. 
Cosmologists have isolated key numbers that are fundamental to understanding the physical universe. Uh, some are extremely large. For example, here's a number that I can't even tell you what it means. I mean, I'll tell you what it means. I just can't read it. Uh, this number, N, uh, measures the strength of the electrical forces that hold atoms together, divided by the force of gravity between them. So this is a, a number that, is, uh, that helps us understand our physical universe. Uh, others, other numbers uh, used by cosmologists are extremely small. Q, for example, represents the ratio between two, uh, two fundamental energies. And there's a Cambridge professor uh, and world-class astronomer named Martin Rees who explained in his book entitled Just Six Numbers, The Deep Forces That Shape the Universe, that if any of these numbers were even fractionally different, there would be no stars, no earth, and no life. And the scientist and former director of the National Human Genome Research Institute, Francis Collins, made a similar point in an interview saying, there are 15 constants that each have precise values. If any one of those constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. So the scale of creation is incredible in and of itself. But when you consider its precision as well, it's unbelievable. So God deserves a hallelujah, a shout of praise for making the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is, that is in them. But he is also the God who, according to the end of verse 6, keeps faith forever. I jumped ahead. That's okay. Um, well, you can imagine. He keeps faith forever. There we go. Um, <laughs> right. This is a God who keeps his promises, who remains true to his word. But not only that, this is our God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourner. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. See, our God, despite his lofty nature, is deeply concerned with us little humans. He's concerned with us and our affairs. And according to this text and, and throughout the Bible, we see this. And the humans he shows a particular concern for are the marginalized, those who are poor, oppressed. He cares for the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. And what does he promise them? He executes justice on their behalf. Now, I think it's worth asking the question, what is justice? What is justice according to the Bible? Well, the word translated justice in this text is the Hebrew word mishpat. And we see it occurring in the Old Testament 425 times. And it's translated as justice in our English Bibles about 120 times. So to say that justice is a major theme in the Old Testament would be quite the understatement. It is extremely important. Now, what does it mean to execute justice according to the Bible? Well, I think we could briefly summarize justice in the Bible as 
giving people their due. Giving people their due. And there are essentially two parts to that. Two ways of giving people what is due to them. One part is negative, and that is to punish wrongdoers. We'd call this retributive justice. Right? If you observe evil in the world and you allow it to go unchecked, you are failing to uphold justice. And while retributive justice isn't particularly popular in Western societies, it is a good and necessary thing. Right? What would we say about a judge who continually lets criminals off the hook, who then go on and perpetuate more crime? Well, we would call that a bad judge. People need to be held accountable, otherwise there will be no justice or peace. The other aspect of justice, however, is positive, and that is to actively seek out vulnerable people and help them. This would be called restorative justice, and we observe both of those things in this text. God executes justice, verse 9, bringing the way of the wicked to ruin, punishing wrongdoers. That's retributive justice. But God also executes justice by giving food to the hungry, lifting up those who are bowed down by watching over the sojourner or immigrant, and by taking up the causes of the widow and the fatherless. It's restorative justice. There's a theologian named Nicholas Walterstorff who's written a few books on, on justice, on biblical justice. And he says that many of the places where you find the word mishpat, there are four groups mentioned. The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor, all of whom are mentioned here in this text. And Wolterstorff calls them the quartet of the vulnerable. So to do justice, according to the Bible, is to do both of these things, to hold wrongdoers accountable, and, and this is actually emphasized more in Scripture, is to lift up the oppressed, to care for, those most, to care for the most vulnerable classes in our society. And we need both if we're going to be true to what the Bible has to say about justice. Now, unfortunately, our human systems have a tendency to emphasize one aspect of justice almost to the exclusion of the other. But we fail justice if we neglect either. Now, in our text, justice is talked about as part of God's identity, The God of Jacob in Psalm 146 is the God who made everything and the God who executes justice. That's how he identifies here. So if this were a a cosmic icebreaker and God were asked to identify two things that were true about himself, he'd say, hi, I'm God, I made everything, and I execute justice. That is how he's identifying himself here. And I think that reality begs the question, If our God is the God who executes justice, why is there so much injustice in the world? As Tom mentioned and prayed for, today is September 11th, a day when 21 years ago our country was rocked by a horrible act of injustice. And in many ways, we've never been the same since. So I think it's natural to ask, where is God when such things happen? Where is he in the midst of all the suffering that we observe, all the suffering that we ourselves experience? And the answer that the Bible gives time and again is that he is right there with those who are suffering. I want to look now at the embodiment of justice in Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, 
Uh, the first time we hear Jesus addressing a crowd publicly in that gospel, when Jesus was inaugurating his public ministry, essentially giving voice to what he was all about, you know what he said? These are his words in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Those words sound really similar to what we read in Psalm 146, don't they? Well, Jesus was quoting Isaiah 61, which is a passage about the work of the Messiah. And he closed that reading by saying, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And when you look at the way in which Jesus went about his ministry, these words really do define what he was all about. He did proclaim good news to the poor. He did set the captives free. He did heal those who were blind. He did set at liberty those who were oppressed. Jesus, in his life and ministry, embodied restorative justice. Those who had been outcasts, those who were downtrodden, found hope, freedom, and joy in Jesus. They had a place with him. And this went on to characterize the life of the early church. And this is still very much a part of who we are, who we ought to be as Christians. Uh, the author Rebecca McLaughlin writes, As Jesus' body on earth, Christians must throw themselves into fellowship with sufferers. This is not a fellowship devoid of practical help. Christians were the first to found hospitals and for all their moral failure have done more in global terms to alleviate suffering than any other movement. We see this historically and we see it today. Okay, so this is restorative justice, but what about retributive justice? How do we observe that in Jesus? Well, in Luke 4, 18 to 19, as I said, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, but Jesus interestingly doesn't finish verse 2 when he quotes it here in this text. He says that he is there to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops but Isaiah 61, 2 goes on to say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Well, what does that mean? It, well, it means that there will come a day when God will hold sinners accountable, where he will judge those who have done wrong, which means all of us, for we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So in, in not quoting the latter part of Isaiah 61-2, is Jesus departing from the Old Testament teaching on justice? That true justice is to be restorative and retributive? Was he thinking like, oh, this idea of God's wrath is, is unpopular right now. I think I'm, gonna, I'm just going to skirt around this. No, not at all. Jesus was not really one to worry about offending people. He offended people all the time. He was very comfortable making people very uncomfortable. Uh, and in many ways, he both talked about and embodied God's righteous anger at sin. I remember the whole story about Jesus creating a whip and flipping tables and getting people out of the temple when he saw that it was being used as a place of greed. Again, he was not afraid of offending. So then why did he leave out this part of Isaiah 61 verse 2? Well, I think it's because Jesus didn't come to bring the day of vengeance, 
Instead, he came to bear the day of vengeance. He didn't come to bring judgment, but to take it upon himself. The reason he could emphasize his work of lifting up those who were oppressed and not say, I've come to punish the wicked, is because he came to take on the punishment that we, the wicked, deserve. Look, when when looking out at the evil and injustice in the world, especially after reading of God's concern for justice, a question that naturally comes up is, is why? Why would God allow these things to occur? And do you know what? When, when we ask why, far from being unfaithful to God, we are echoing questions that are asked throughout the Bible. We are actually echoing a question that Jesus himself asked when he was on the cross, when he called out, quoting Psalm 22, 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the truth is, in much of our suffering, we don't know why, and we won't on this side of glory. But we do know two extremely important things. First, that God is at work in the midst of our suffering. Romans 8.28 reminds us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Despite our suffering, we can know that God is there at work in and through even the most difficult circumstances. And the second thing that the Bible affirms over and over again about our suffering is that He is right there with us in whatever it is we're facing. And the cross is the ultimate proof of that. Not only did Jesus work to lift up those who are downtrodden, right, the quartet of the vulnerable, He also worked to punish sin, showing its evil and repugnance by taking on its consequences on the cross. No one can look at the cross and claim that God is indifferent to sin and to suffering. Even the skeptical philosopher and author Albert Camus concludes, Christ the God-man suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows, the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair included, the agony of death. At the cross, Jesus sets aside his privilege and endured the agony of death, upholding God's perfect justice for us for you. And because of this, for those who belong to him, there is hope that one day he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In the meantime, we live in a fallen world, and Jesus warns us directly, in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In Jesus, we have hope because he has embodied and satisfied God's justice. And because of that, we can know 
as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That is true for us if we've placed our faith in Him. So then I think with this text, with this topic, there is a, a twofold call. And the first is to take heart. Again, Jesus' words in John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We live in a fallen world, and while Jesus has overcome it, we don't yet get to experience the consummation of his work. So in the meantime, we take heart, trusting in Jesus' work, trusting that one day his kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Looking forward to the day when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We can take heart and trust in his work. We can take heart and trust in his love. A love that has been so powerfully demonstrated on the cross. Jesus was so deeply affected by sin and suffering that he was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. No one can look at the cross and conclude that Jesus is indifferent to our pain. He didn't abandon us there, and he won't now in whatever it is we face. So consider for a moment, where are you hurting? Where are you asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are you feeling downtrodden? Are you feeling oppressed? Are you uncertain that you're going to make it? Are you asking that question in the context of, of a relationship? You know, when will I be reconciled to my spouse? When will I be reconciled to my kids, to my parents, to my friends? Are you asking that question in regards to your health? When will I feel okay again? Friend, Jesus encourages you to take heart knowing that he is at work in the midst of your pain and that he is right there with you in it. Jesus himself is described as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, which means that he is uniquely equipped to minister to us in everything that we face. I think the second call from this text, from, from the reality of God's justice, the other call as as God's people here on earth, his body in the world, his ambassadors, according to 2 Corinthians 5.20. The other call is to work for justice to the best of our ability. We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done with the hope that God will use us to help make that a tangible reality. This call was expressed powerfully by a Congolese physician and Christian, a man named Dennis McQuaggy. Uh, he's he's nicknamed the, uh, he was nicknamed Dr. Miracle, and uh, he's, pioneer, he's a pioneering surgeon who's uh, treated thousands of victims of sexual violence and was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2018 for his work. And in a keynote address, he said this, he said, as long as our faith is defined by theory and not connected with practical realities, we shall not be able to fulfill the mission entrusted to us by Christ. If we are Christ's, we have no choice but to be alongside the weak, the wounded, the refugees, and women suffering dis discrimination. Out of gratitude for the grace that we have been shown 
out of love for the one who so loved us that he was willing to die for us, we move forward and show concern for the ones that he was concerned for at the quartet of the vulnerable. We need to seek to show care in tangible ways. When we come forward for for communion in just a few minutes, we're going to be singing a song called um, Instrument of Peace. And it's a song based on a prayer from St. Francis of Assisi. And this was his prayer. He said, Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. Friends, may this prayer be our own. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth this morning that you are just. And God, we ask that you would give us the wisdom by your Spirit to look to you for justice. That we wouldn't put our, 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 our hope in princes or anyone who is, is lacking, but that our trust would be in you. And Father, we, we pray that in the midst of sadness, of suffering, of injustice, that we'd be able to look to Jesus who embodies your justice so perfectly. We thank you for his willingness to sacrifice himself so that your justice could be maintained. And God, we ask that we in turn, moved, compelled by your grace and love, we ask that we would be instruments of your peace. Help us where we're lacking. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.